Sarah Vigiano Wright tells the story of as an adult living in Texas going to visit her, her father who had a farm, has a farm in Minnesota. And uh, one of the nights that she spent there at the farm, there was a big snowstorm. And so she woke up in the morning to a fresh blanket of white snow. And uh, her father came down and asked if she'd like to help feed the horses. And that's one of the things she loves to do. And so she said, sure. And so they started to make their way to the barn. Uh, but, but first, uh, she had not brought any snow clothes being from Texas, she didn't really have any, so she borrowed a snowsuit and some boots from her dad, which were both much too big for her, but uh, she followed and she started to go to the barn, but pretty soon, about halfway there, the snow was coming up to her knees, and she was having a hard time even just walking through the snow, and so her dad recognized that and went back and, and uh, started to walk in front of her, making deep holes in the snow. And so as she walked, she could put her feet right where he had left his footprints. And that way she made it to the barn. Well, in this season of Lent that we are in right now, leading up to Easter, we are looking at and talking about various theories of the atonement. In other words, what happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross and then rose from the grave. And uh, today I'm going to talk about a somewhat controversial theory of the atonement called the moral influence theory. Now it's one of the oldest uh, theories in Christian theology and history, uh, kind of dating back to uh, St. Augustine, who was a great theologian in the fourth century. Uh, he, he sort of uh, formulated this theory, and it is it. It says that uh, the death of Christ is an example for us. That something about how and why he died, in essence, leaves footprints for us to follow in, a model for us. Now, there are a number of passages that we could look at in the Bible to talk about this theory, but I've chosen one from 1 Peter chapter 2 that I think will be very helpful and illuminating. So, if you are able, would you please stand for this reading of God's Word? 1 Peter 2, starting verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." This is God's word for God's people and for the good of the world. Please be seated. Well, this morning, I'm going to use the ancient Socratic method of asking questions uh, in order to try to understand this topic. And so the first question I want to ask is this. Was Jesus' death an example for us? Now, that seems like a simple question, right? 
And yet the answer is a bit complex because the answer is no, but yes. All right? So we can't say that Jesus' death was only an example, right? In other words, if this is the only theory of the atonement we hold to, we are on very shaky ground. Now, there are some who would say, philosophers and even uh, amateur theologians, who would say that that is the one sufficient theory of the atonement. And they would say that Jesus' death is just an example. It is merely an example. That it had, in their view, nothing to do with sin or salvation or forgiveness. That it is only about an example of love and commitment. And in this view, uh, sort of the view of Jesus is that he was, he was just a good man who was put to death by a harsh system. But when we, when we see that kind of love and commitment, you know, we see Jesus on the cross, our hearts can fill with compassion and we can learn to love other people better. The problem with that, of course, is if you think about it for more than 10 seconds, it's absurd, Right? Because if Jesus didn't die for something, for someone, if his death was in some ways just an accident, then in no ways is it a model of love or self-sacrifice or commitment. Because love and commitment to what? Right? This would be like, kind of like saying that a bunch of people who died in a plane crash were models of love and self-sacrifice. No, they're victims, right? That was a terrible tragedy. They may have been good people while they lived, but that was not an example of love or self-sacrifice. Jesus' death must have accomplished something for it to matter to anyone. He must have died on the cross for someone, to show love to someone, right? This is why Peter says in verse 24, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, right? On the cross, he took our sins on himself. That is what love looks like. So Jesus' death is more than just an example, right? It is the key to salvation and forgiveness. But it's also not less than an example, Right? And this is where Peter says in verse 21 that it is actually an example. Right? What does he say? For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Right? Now, the context of this passage is where Peter is talking about submitting to those in authority. He talks about submitting to the emperor in in this time when they're under the rule of the Roman emperor. And then he starts to talk about a group of people who happened to be in the church, who were considered among the lowest uh, social class in society. And that is what uh, the ESV and some other translations translates as slaves. But probably the best translation is household servants, right? Not really slaves, what, what we think of as slaves. They were paid they were probably much more like indentured servitude. Uh, but what's interesting is that these servants or slaves were not 
typically addressed in civil discourse, right? And so what Peter is doing here is fairly radical. He's making sure to address those who have so often been overlooked, right? And, and to address, he's not endorsing slavery, right? He's saying something much more redemptive. He is saying that for those of you who may suffer the worst, right? Who may suffer more than everyone else, you have good company because Jesus also suffered. And as he suffered, you also can suffer as an example for those who are looking on as a testimony uh, of your new life in Christ and your ultimate commitment to the God the Father. And, you, and your life is a testimony to everyone who sees it, even those who may be involved in hurting you. And notice what he says in verse 21. He says, to this you have been called. Interesting. He's talking about Again, he's talking about suffering, suffering well for the glory of God as Christ did. What I think he's saying here is that suffering is not just a fate to be endured. It is actually a calling to be embraced and maybe even pursued. Now, there's a big difference between those things, isn't there? A fate and a calling. Now, Pittsburgh Steelers fans know the difference between those two things, all right? Because the Steelers last year had a rookie that every Steeler fan was excited about, Najee Harris, a running back from the University of Alabama. And he is different from all the other running backs the Steelers have because all the other running backs the Steelers have, they try, when they run with the football, they try to avoid contact, right? They only get hit if they have to, right? It is part of the game. But Najee, when he runs, right, he's not afraid of contact. He's ready to stiff arm you to the ground. He wants to put his shoulder into guys and be the, the one who initiates the punishment. Right? In some ways, that's the difference between being called to suffering and just accepting it as your faith. Jesus even modeled that. The book of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him... He endured the cross, scorning the shame. And so in some ways, we too can rejoice in sufferings, for suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, that illustration may have been a little far, right, for emphasis. We don't necessarily look for suffering or try to initiate pointless suffering, as a wise person once said, God, let God choose his own martyrs, right? But when suffering comes, Peter's point is don't be surprised or angry. For if our Lord and Master suffer greatly and promised that those who follow him would, in some ways we ought to expect it. So Jesus' death is an example for us. But what is about his life? Do we imitate Jesus' life or his death? Uh, now, Peter's not the only biblical writer to talk about Jesus' death as an example. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. The Apostle John 
also talks about Jesus' exemplary death. In 1 John 3, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But in verse 22, Peter makes this sweeping and kind of shocking statement. He says that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Now you're telling me that Jesus lived for 33 years and he never committed a sin? He, he never told a lie? He never hated someone in his heart? He never had prideful or lustful thoughts. He never disobeyed his parents. He never failed to love God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Because that's what Peter is saying, right? And really that is a key to to the Bible's view of who Jesus is. That he was completely sinless throughout his life. He perfectly kept the law on our behalf. And because he did that, he was the perfect sacrifice in his death. And that means that his whole life was dedicated to loving God and loving others fully. And that's, that is also the example that we are to follow as Christians. In fact, that's what the very word Christian means, right? Christ follower. Someone who, who, who follows in his steps not just in suffering, but in love and forgiveness and joy and peace, right? Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer so that we would pray as he prayed. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And how do we know what the heavenly Father looks like? Because we see him in the Son, Jesus. When you look at that famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envy or boast. What is that ultimately a picture of? All those adjectives about love are ultimately all about the source of love, Jesus himself. That whole chapter is a picture of the person of Jesus who is patient and kind, never envious or boastful or proud. And is calling us to be like him in his life and is his death. He is, Jesus is the standard that we should measure ourselves against. Now, when you are learning to play an instrument, particularly the drums, one of the most important things to learn is how to keep time, right? And how do you know if you're keeping good time? Well, you, you can learn it by playing with other musicians who are good at it or by listening, you know, to a song in your phone. But, but that doesn't always, that's not always perfect, right? In fact, even uh, a band like the Rolling Stones, they actually have a song that, uh, called Honky Tonk Woman that starts at 103 beats per minute and ends at somewhere around 109 beats per minute. Actually speed up throughout the song. To know if you're keeping good time, there's really one way to know, and that is with a metronome, right? The perfect standard of how to keep time. You need to measure yourself against that. My question is, how do you measure your life. Who do you measure life against? 
Now, I think it's too bad that everyone doesn't have a twin, twin brother or sister. Because if you did, you could measure yourself against someone, especially if they, you know, if their life is a lot like yours, if they have the same interests and maybe even the same profession. I have a twin brother who is a Presbyterian minister who likes to play golf and plays the guitar, and we have so many of the same interests. And so, you know, at 48, I can sort of look at my life and go and have this kind of objective measurement. There's this person who's just like me, but I'm better at golf than he is. When I used to play basketball, I could dunk on a nine-foot goal, and he couldn't, right? I'm better at guitar than he is. I'm winning in life. Of course, there's the other side. He's better at tennis than me. He is more outgoing and better in social situations than me. He's a better long-term friend than I've ever been. Here's the deal, though. When I'm, when I'm measuring my life against my brother, I'm, I am falling way short of where I need to look, right? I mean, for one thing, he's not a good golfer at all. So even if I'm better than him, that doesn't mean I'm a good golfer, right? I don't know if I'm good. measure myself against someone like Michael Boyd or another professional golfer to know if I'm really good, right? And the way to measure if you're a good person is not to measure yourself against the people around you, right? It's not to say, well, at least I'm better than my parents or I don't know that I'm that good a worker, but I'm better than those coworkers, right? The only way to, to know if you're a good person is to measure yourself against the one truly great person, Jesus Christ, who, what does Peter say, committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is our standard, our measurement, our model. But what does that look like practically? Well, when I was in college, uh, it, was a, it was a thing to wear those wristbands that said WWJD, right? You guys know what that means. What would Jesus do? And that's it's actually a really good question to ask. And it has a thousand practical implications, right? If you got up this morning wondering, should I go to church? Look at the life of Jesus, Right? What do the Gospels say? When, when on the Sabbath, Jesus was in the synagogue. And when you look at Jesus on the very last night of his life, teaching his disciples seemingly the most important things, what is he talking about? The church. The unity, the priority of being part of his body, the church. When someone has hurt me, I can look at John chapter 21. And I can see Peter who betrayed Jesus. And I can see Jesus cooking him breakfast on the beach and, and restoring him into fellowship. And I can say, oh, you know what? Sometimes even someone who's hurt me, I need to take the initiative and go to them and serve them and invite them into relationship again. When I'm thinking about how to treat the poor, I can learn a lot from looking at how Jesus treated the poor. 
and the sinners and children. But there's a problem with WWJD, right? The problem is that we are not called to do the same things that Jesus did, right? Particularly, we are not called to die for the sins of the world, right? There is only one Savior, and you are not him. And so, and a lot of things that you do and that you experience uh, will not really have an obvious corollary in Jesus's life. And so, in addition to that first question, what would Jesus do? There's maybe a second question that you could ask, which is WWJHMD. What would Jesus have me do? Right? Which is a bigger conversation and includes the rest of the Bible, right? Not just the Gospels or the New Testament, because all of Scripture is the Word of God. It is all a testimony of Jesus. And applying the, all of the Bible to our situations is, helps us make us wise decisions on things we, we maybe don't see modeled in the life of Christ. For instance, you're thinking about getting married. What would Jesus do? We don't know. Jesus never got married, right? But if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it becomes obvious that he would want, he would, what would Jesus have me do? He would have me marry someone who is a believer, who shares a common commitment and calling in Christ. You're trying to decide what college to go to. What would Jesus do? He didn't go to college. He certainly spent his life learning. But what would Jesus have me do? He would, would want you to think about your calling in life. He would want you to think about your motivations for going to college and choosing which colleges. And then, as often is the case with God, there's a lot of freedom in making those kinds of decisions. Following Jesus does take wisdom. And it means that you need to know who the real Jesus is to be like him. A general rule of thumb is that the better you know the Bible, the better you will know who the real Jesus is and what he would have you to do. We can also learn about Jesus, though, from the lives of other Christians. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Right? So who is it in your life who is imitating Christ? You can learn from them, but also be careful. Right? Because religious leaders who don't reflect the suffering and humility of the cross in their lives are often not worth following. Right? If a Christian leader is never repentant, right, but always, always on the warpath about other people's sins, if they demand that you serve them but never they serve anyone, be careful. If a pastor won't sit with the wounded and weep with the weeping, he is not imitating Christ. But there are many Christians who do model a Christ-like life, so follow them. Following Jesus is a lifelong pursuit. Right? Learning to follow in his steps continues all the way to death. But it's never a lonely pursuit. Because Jesus is not just held before us as an example. He is also in us, encouraging us strengthening us to live godly lives 
in view of his perfect life and death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, though, that in a world full of corruption, full of sinners, in a world where we know that our hearts are continually idle factories, there was one who modeled a perfect life and died a perfect death. We can look to learn what love means, learn how we ought to live, Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus, who though being in nature God did not consider equality with you something to be grasped, but gave himself up, taking on the form of a servant, becoming a, like us, and humbling self, himself even to the point of death. Father, we thank you for that example, and we pray that you would help us to live According to that example of love and to live in the freedom and the forgiveness that the cross gives to us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.